now listening to Grace City Portland. Yeah, let's hear it. Yes. Thank you, Blair. <laughs> that was fun. Uh, my name is Simon, as Blair mentioned. I'm the pastor here and, and just one of several leaders in this church. Uh, good morning. It's good to see you. Thank you for being here this morning. There's a lot of places I reckon uh, we all could be on any given Sunday morning, but you're here. Guys, we've been working through a sort of a multi-week series entitled I Am, We Are, and it's a series about well-being and identity. This morning... We're going to jump into the book of Genesis, and we're going to look at yet another aspect of well-being and identity in Jesus. Um, so if you have a Bible, flip it open to Genesis chapter 15, because that's where we're going to begin this morning. Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to start right at verse 1. Should be up on the slide there. Here we go. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus, whoever that is. Verse 3, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Just pause there for a moment. We're going to continue on. Um, A little context. Um, Some of you might be at least vaguely familiar with Abraham, with the, the father of faith, this ancient desert dweller who had an encounter with the living God, the God who calls himself Yahweh, I am, and he makes this promise to this ancient man, and he, we're not even really told why, he's just this random guy living out in the desert, and God meets with him, he picks him out, and he says, I'm going to use you, I'm going to make a promise to you that through you, your family It's going to grow. It's going to be a great family. It's going to become a nation, even many nations. And through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. I'm going to heal the world. I'm going to bring about restoration. Wherever there's brokenness, wherever wherever death reigns, I'm going to bring new life. And I'm going to do it through you. Now, Abraham was 75 years old when God first met with him and made him this promise. He said, I want you to go. I want you to leave Ur, and I want you to go to this place, never been there before, didn't really even know where he was going, but God said, I promise you, if you trust me, if you go, 
that I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to fulfill this promise that I'm making you. Now, in the ancient world, of course, uh, to, to prosper, to be a blessing, to even survive meant that you, you needed to, to, a progeny was a big deal. You needed to have, like, children to, to keep the family going, to simply provide for yourself and, and, and stay protected. Um, you need, of course, land was a big deal in the ancient world. Land didn't just simply mean you had a plot to build your house on. It means you had a place to survive. It means you could actually thrive in that world. And so Abraham's questioning God says, you, you, this is the third time, by the way, that God has made this promise. And he keeps getting a little more and more explicit every time he, he meets with Abraham. And he reminds him of this promise. The third time, he says, I'm going to bless you. But Abraham says, look, I'm old. I'm getting older. And you say you're going to do this great thing through my family. But FYI, I still don't have an offspring. I have, it's just me and my wife. And a guy named Eleazar. Who's not even in my family. So explain to me how you're going to keep this promise. This is essentially what's what's going on. Now, what happens, I want to paraphrase just a few verses, but um, God responds to this, but he said, oh Lord, how shall I know that I shall possess it? Or in other words, how, how, how do I know you're going to do this? How can I trust that you are, in fact, going to keep your promise? And so then God says to him, um, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and he says, go get a bunch of animals. And he proceeds to instruct Abram to cut these animals in half and align them in just such a way. He, he, he instructs Abram to set up what in the ancient world would have immediately have been recognized as, okay, we're about to form a covenant. There's going to be blood involved. There's going to be, there's, something's going to die. And there, there, a ceremony is about to take place, which would have quite clearly signaled to Abraham that we are about to form a covenant, a, a, a contract, if you will. God is going to make a promise, and this is how he responds to Abraham. So Abraham does it. And then in verse 12, we can go to the next slide. It's all set up. Animals cut, he's, he's cut the animals in half. He's arranged them just so. The ceremony is about to take place. And then in verse 12, it says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon them. It's getting heavy. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there or slaves and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now God is beginning to say, look it, I am going to fulfill my promise you can trust me. You can know for certain, but this is how it's going to go down. And he begins to actually explain to Abraham future events. Hundreds of years are going to go by. So he's, he's unpacking this. It's all very heavy. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that has enslaved his family that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you. You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here 
in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So there's a timing thing there. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give this land. Now, the smoking pot, (laughs) the smoking fire pot, that's not what you think. The smoking fire pot, this is not one of those moments. The smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. Obviously, there's, there's there's some symbolism happening here. This is where a good commentary can actually be quite handy. Um, and all the commentaries are in agreement, all the ones that I've read, which are quite a few. What's happening here symbolically is it's a picture of two people making a covenant. Now in the ancient world, again, this would have been, this would have been commonplace. This would have been understood to mean, okay, covenants being formed, but typically when two parties would make a commitment to one another, when a covenant would be established, when a promise is made and certain conditions laid out, the sacrifices would be, would be, would be arranged accordingly, and then the two parties would pass through these, uh, these carcasses together. And the meaning was that if one of the party members were to break the covenant, If they were to fail to keep up their end of the bargain, this would be the result. Okay, it would, it would mean bloodshed. There would be dire consequences. But in this vision, we see not Abraham passing through, but the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. The the symbols that represent the king, the Lord, God himself, who, who is of course the, um, Above Abram, he's the one that passes through the carcasses to meet Abram on the other side. In essence, what's being said here is that God makes a promise and Abram says, how how will I know? How will I know? I'm 75 years old. This is crazy. How will I know that you will, in fact, be faithful to keep your promise? He says, right, lay it out. Let's, Let's make a covenant heaviness comes, deep darkness. It's a, it's a terrifying moment. And he has this vision. And it's not Abraham who's passing through, but it's God himself. He's saying, I will see this happen. And it's on me to see that it's done. If this thing falls apart, if I prove to be unfaithful, I myself will take responsibility for the consequences this, this is God declaring his faithfulness. Um, so we can go to the next slide. Uh, if you've not already connected the dots, we're talking about faithfulness this morning. I, I would contend that faithfulness is arguably the if not, certainly not one of the primary attributes of God's character. And that, that's the snow light matter. I would, I would put it right up there with God's holiness. Uh, God is just. God is merciful. God is faithful. 
God is the faithful one. Let me ask you a question, and you can this this can be rhetorical. Do you trust God? If so, how much? Um, and why? Do you trust God? Why? I asked Shirley, my wife, this question last night. Um, <laughs> super tired. I said, do you trust God? Yes, I trust God. Why? <laughs> because the Bible says so. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's not bad, actually. Don't know if it'll preach super well. Um, but yes, that's good. That's a great starting point. Um, because God doesn't lie. Because he's never lied. Um, yeah, he doesn't go back on his word. But do you trust God? Do you believe that he's faithful? How much so? So, so? 50% so? Mostly so? In theory, so? In reality, not much? Um, this, this is a question we want to we think about for a moment. Um, of course, if you're a Christian, obviously you have to say, have to say, of course I trust God because the Bible says so. Great, right answer. But do you really? Do you really? Because when it comes to actually living out our lives and following Jesus and trusting him and obeying him because we trust him, well, that the proof is in the pudding. It, that just depends on how you live your life out. Because the scriptures tell us that you, you can't just simply say you have faith without some sort of evidence of that faith. Faith and works. You, you can't break the two things apart. Your faith is evidenced by the way you live your life or your works as it were. So if you want to know, if you do believe God is faithful, if that is if you trust him, well, you've just simply got to get a documentary film team, film team to follow you around and like film your life for a few weeks and you can watch it back and you should be able to tell. Um, you, you shall know them by their fruit, is what the Bible says. There should be some evidence, some indication that you are, in fact, uh, believing that God is faithful. It will be reflected in your relationships. It will be reflected in what you do with your money or don't do with it, what you do with your time. Um, it should actually look pretty radical. I would even say counter-cultural, beautiful, provocative. There should be some indication if you do. Um, there's a couple of promises. There's a lot of promises. And you might be wondering, why on earth did we just read out of Genesis 15? Like, where's the connection? That was super random. Um, we could have picked, like, one of a thousand different portions of Scripture to highlight the faithfulness of God. I picked Genesis 15 because as we, as we, as we, go throughout the Old Testament, the old story, the ancient story of God, and eventually come to Jesus and see the ultimate faithfulness of God put on display in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, it all seems to somehow hinge on this original promise that God made to the father of faith, Abraham. 
Um, but when we get into the New Testament, the writers continue to reiterate how God is faithful. For example, um, 1 Thessalonians 5.24. I love this. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely bring it to pass. Just as God called Abram, we have been called. And he who calls you is faithful and surely he will bring it to pass. Hebrews 10.23. We're exhorted. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And we could go on and on and on. Do you believe that? Let's say a few things about God's faithfulness, and then we'll explore a little bit of what what it looks like to say, I too, like my heavenly father, am faithful. Um, three things. We can go to the next slide. I've got them up there. God's faithfulness is explicit, it's unconditional, and it's costly. Number one, God's faithfulness is explicit. Notice in Genesis 15 that God explicitly made a promise to Abram. It wasn't implied, it wasn't suggested, it wasn't alluded to, it was explicitly spelled out. And as I mentioned, it was the third time, and not the last time, that Abraham received this promise from God. I'm going to do something. I am going to use you, if you'll trust me, to bring redemption in the entire world. And it's, it's stated, it's expressed in explicit terms. God, God's faithfulness means that he explicitly makes and vows to keep his promises. Um, it's a bit like exchanging marriage vows. Um, you know, when Shirley and I were just dating, there was, there was a, an implied kind of faithfulness in the relationship. Um, I hadn't, I hadn't sworn anything to, I hadn't made a vow to her. Um, but it was implied that I wasn't going to like flake out or be a jerk or cheat on her, but it wasn't explicitly laid out. I hadn't promised that I was going to spend the rest of my life with her and be with her forever. Come, come, come better or worse. And then we were engaged and guys don't do this. But when I proposed to Shirley, I actually didn't have a ring. I know it's bad, huh? Boo, boo. But there's a whole story behind it, and we were... Of course it was your fault. Thank you for saying that. We were in South Africa. We were walking along a cliff. The sun was setting, and the Lord spoke to me. And he's like, do it now. So we did it. And the next day, I think the very next day, we, went, we picked out a little promise ring at like a little, little local jewelry shop. In uh, where were we? Where were we? Doesn't matter. Plettenberg Bay. Plettenberg Bay. Eventually, I got a ring, and there was another level of expressed faithfulness. But it was engagement. Like I'd still not declared my vow. And then eventually, um, five months later, we stood on an altar, on holy ground, as it were. And before God, and before our family and friends, before witnesses, I expressed 
in explicit terms my vows to my wife. And Shirley did the same thing to me. I made a promise to her. It wasn't implied. It wasn't like, well, you know my heart. You you know I'm not going to bail. No, it was very explicit. I made a promise. And I said, till death do us part. I'm not going to break this promise unless one of us has to die. Okay. And that's, that's how God expresses his faithfulness. He's a promise making and keeping God. Um, you know, sometimes we, we talked a little bit about theodicy last week. This idea of how can a, a God who's allegedly good and all-powerful, uh, benevolent and omnipotent, allow seemingly unjust suffering to go on in the world. And sometimes when we think about that, and it's sort of this philosophical conundrum, and, and, and we wonder, like, but if God can stop it, and if God might intend to stop it, why doesn't he make the pain go away? And that can be a very difficult thing to wrestle with, especially on an emotional level. If you're in the pain, that's you want to know, you need to know. But there's a third aspect that you need to, to consider, a third aspect of what God is like when you're wrestling with some of those big questions. And that is, is God faithful? He might be all-powerful, and I reckon he is. That's God by definition. And he might be good, and I believe he is gooder than we could possibly fathom. He is the, the gooderest. But God is not just powerful, and God doesn't merely have good intentions. He's a faithful God. He makes promises that he's not only able to keep, that he not only desires to keep, but that he is faithful to keep. He will not flake out. And so God's faithfulness is explicit, like a marriage vow. Number two, God's faithfulness is unconditional. Okay, now we're gonna get we're gonna get deep for a minute. We're gonna try. Bear with me. God's faithfulness is not contingent upon my performance. He doesn't attach strings to his faithfulness. God's faithfulness is not contingent upon my performance. Question. Am I able to foil the faithfulness of God? Am I able to somehow thwart God's faithfulness? Are God's promises virtually unaffected by my unfaithfulness? Is there anything that I can do to somehow subvert God's faithfulness, undo God's promises? Are God's is God's faithfulness utterly without condition? So he made a promise to Abram. He said, I'm going to do this. 
I'm going to do it three times, I've told you. Each time, I'm making it more explicit. The second time, he said, count the, count the dust on, on the ground. Third time, he said, count the stars, and you're getting the picture. Abram, I'm going to do something that's going to melt your brain. And that's all he says. I'm going to do it. The, it says that Abraham responded by believing. It wasn't even, it's not even communicated as a stipulation. We're just simply told that Abram responded and he said, I, I believe you. I trust you. And God says, right. This is going to work out great. And it was, it was accounted to him as righteous. He says, right. You and I, we can do this. You're right with me. You're, this is, this is going to be family. And they make a covenant. If you turn the page, then we get to Genesis chapter 17. This is the fourth time that um, God appears to Abram. And it reiterates the promise. This time Abram's 99 years old. Uh, almost 25 years later, 24 years later, he's been walking around in the desert. He's still without child. And he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Be blameless that I may make my covenant or renew or keep my covenant that, that I've established with you and multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And no longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for you shall be the father of many nations. So this is great, awesome. So the covenant is still intact. I'm 99 now, still don't have a kid, but I'm, I'm still believing you. <clears throat> then God says, right. This is, I'm going to, I'm going to ratify the covenant. I'm going to add a little twist to it. And this is what I want you to do. Abraham, I want you to go to get a sharp rock. And I want you to get all of the men in your household, all the servants, including yourself, and cut the foreskin of your penis off. It's, that's not funny. Like, this is what he says. This is what he says. And he's like, this is how all the generations after you will know that, that you are covenant members of my family. And it's, it's this like really bizarre thing. Now again, little commentary is helpful in the ancient world. That would have been quite meaningful. This would actually would have been a common practice when establishing, excuse me, covenant. This practice of circumcision. So he does it and he obeys. But here's my point. It would seem that God has now sort of like added this condition to his promise. Because he, he says, um, this is chapter 17, verse 20, or verse 14. God says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, foreskin shall be cut off, no pun intended, from his people. He has broken my covenant. I, I think there is actually a pun intended. He shall be cut off from his people. So God's saying, I've formed my covenant with you. I'm making you into this family. But now here's, here's a stipulation as it were. Is this an added condition to God's faithfulness? That's the question. Now, oh, thank you. For hundreds, over a thousand years go by. 
God does it. Um, Abraham does have a son. His name's Isaac. It's my boy's name. And they do end up multiplying. And they become many nations um, eventually. And they actually are deep, deep, deported. They have to leave the, the land that they were promised and go live in Egypt for 400 years because of this huge um, famine that breaks out. And eventually they become enslaved to, uh, to the empire in Egypt. They're not just servants of the Egyptians. They become enslaved, just like God had promised and eventually they're brought out. He delivers them. He, he, he raises up a prophet called Moses and they come out. And all of this begins to unfold. But the whole circumcision stipulation kind of, it, it hangs on. He, he's actually, God says, like, this is, this is forever. This is a bit of a theological, theological conundrum. God made a promise and then later on, 24 years later, says, oh, I'm, I want to like ratify it a little bit. I want to, you know what he's doing? Now, New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he writes a whole letter to a group of churches that we've entitled Galatians. Have you ever read, read the book of Galatians? He unpacks like this theological conundrum. And he, he basically insists that the faithfulness of God is not conditioned upon my ability to perform. So this physical sign of circumcision, which was meant to be like the external sign that I'm a member of God's covenant family. I'm in. I'm like Abraham. I trust Yahweh. I'm part of the promise that's unfolding through this family. But he creates a way for you and I to opt out. God's faithfulness is not a sort of spiritual fatalism. Like God said it, it's happening. You're caught up in it whether you like it or not. God says, look, if you choose not to circumcise your sons, then you're out. And that's your choice. That is your choice. You're like, okay, cool, I'm out. No problem. I describe this as fortune cookie versus covenant family theology. Fortune cookie is this idea. It's like you break it open. It's like there it is. It's on paper. You got the lot of numbers on the other side. Like that's like done. It's happening. It's destiny. You ever you get a good fortune cookie lately? No. I did. I actually did. Uh, what with Taylor and I went out to lunch. It was a good one. Um, you got two. Two fortunes in one cookie. Unprecedented. <laughs> Double portion. But this idea that there's this like destiny, this, this fortune, this promise that God has like set in motion. And, and really... You, you have no say, you have no part, you, can, you cannot affect it, you can, and it's this sort of fatalistic way of understanding God's faithfulness. But that's not, that's not what God is like. He decides that he wants to save the world, bring about redemption through a family, through relationship. 
And he seems to consistently want to make sure that as he calls people to trust him and subsequently obey him, that he gives us the integrity of choice. He gives us the option to exit out. Now, that doesn't mean that somehow now I can override God's faithfulness. He simply sets it up so that if I want nothing to do with him, if I want to forfeit his faithfulness, if I want to somehow opt out of his promises and be my own God, start my own family, have my own project, then God allows for that. He allows me to opt out of his family. But there's a big difference between God's faithfulness being conditioned upon my ability to perform and God loving me enough to simply let me walk away should I opt out. It's a very nuanced tension. Some of you um, may have thought a little bit about uh, doesn't the Bible say something about like blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And um, if you if you grew up in a Catholic tradition, you may have even been taught that there's like unforgivable sins or an unforgivable sin. Um, but you may be thinking like, what about that? Like, is there some like sin out there that's so bad that if I do it, like that's it? Like, I'm out. Oh, and by the way, the whole circumcision thing, I'm really not trying to be funny. It is a little funny to our modern ears, but um, Paul writes in Romans 2 that that external, that symbolic sign of of physical circumcision was actually a foreshadow to a kind of spiritual circumcision where the Spirit of God himself would circumcise our hearts. He would cut away a calloused heart and give us a new soft heart. This, This was Jeremiah 31, 31. That he would write his law upon our hearts. That he would do something that's beyond the external, the physical. And that the new sign of membership in God's covenant family wouldn't be circumcision, but would be a circumcised heart. That is a human being that is filled with the spirit of God. That's the new sign that you're in the covenant family of God. But what about this unforgivable, this quote-unquote unforgivable sin? Um, it says in Hebrews... In two different places that there's this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit, outraging the spirit of grace. And we tend to kind of think about that in terms of like, is it possible for me to lose my salvation? Which to me is like a really, an alien question that we attempt to superimpose upon the scriptures. Because the Bible's not talking about losing your salvation. The Bible's talking about, is it possible to resist the spirit of God so wholeheartedly that eventually God says, right, you want out, you're out. You want out of the family? You hate me that much? You hate yourself that much? Fine, you're out. But just know that this, this is an eternal covenant. This is not a temporary situation. My family is forever. My kingdom lasts forever. So be very, very careful before you decide to permanently opt out. But this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit, it's when a person determines to resist the Spirit of God so wholeheartedly that you end up hardening your own heart. 
That's, that's the quote-unquote unforgivable sin. It's not suicide. It's not abortion. It's not any of these terrible, terrible sins that deeply grieve the heart of God. God's faithfulness supersedes our grossest, most idiotic sins. He is faithful even when we're not. God's faithfulness is costly. God's promise to Abraham cost the father, that is God the father, the life of his only son. It's in Genesis 22 that um, we read of that, that epic moment when God commands Abraham, who's now finally gotten his boy, Isaac, to go up to the top of the mountain and sacrifice his only son. It is, it is a supreme test of trust. It's, shock, it's disturbing. God commands Abraham, take your only son and go sacrifice him. And so father and son, they hike up to the top of this hill. Um, many Bible scholars suggest that the, the very hill that they um, hiked to the top of was the same hill that eventually the temple was founded upon. That place where the very presence of God was to dwell. Only at the last moment God says, don't do it. Don't do it. Now I know for sure that you trust me. And then many, many years later, God sacrifices his only son to fulfill the promise that he made Abraham. God's faithfulness is costly. Salvation God's grace, his love, it's freely given. No strings attached. Is it cheap? God, no. It's unfathomably costly. It costs God everything to keep his promise. His faithfulness is heavy. It knows no bounds. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in him, it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Genesis 15 is arguably the beginning of this great promise. From there, the story ramps up and unfolds. It's the story of God. But as you trace it, trace through it, if you're doing the Bible reading plan with us as a community right now, you're, you're in Exodus now, and God is beginning to deliver these people. But again and again and again, God's people are incredibly unfaithful. Like we screw it up every time. But God is so faithful. He's so patient. He's so loving. He's so loving that he'll often make sure that his children are feeling the full consequences of the rebellion. And that's usually the thing that like wakes them up. And they come back to him. That's how God treats his children. It's wonderful and terrible. 
And all throughout scripture, we find this sort of like dissonant refrain over and over and over. Is God faithful? It doesn't seem to be panning out. God promised that he was going to re- redeem the world, that he was going to bless the world, and he was going to use this family. And, and, but it's not working out. And in fact, a handful of times, it would seem the family line of Abraham is about to die out. I mean, it's like right down to the wire. And it gets really bad when this whole nation, Abraham has become this nation, these 12 tribes of Israel, they've actually been taken captive and, and they, they're no longer even in the land they'd been promised. And now they, they're living as captives all over again in Babylon. And it seems like game over. Faithfulness thwarted. God tried. His intentions were noble. But we foiled the plot. So this happens over and over again. And the reader is left wondering like, is God going to be faithful? Is God going to actually fulfill his promise? Is God going to rescue the world? Is he going to send the, the one, the offspring that, that, of the lineage of Abraham to, to finish what he started, to bring to pass what he began in this, this man? And we get all through the Old Testament. And if we just stopped there, it would seem like, dang, guess not. And then the one, the one comes, the offspring, the one who was promised all the way back in Genesis 3. When he promised the woman through your line, your seed will crush the head of the evil one. And he will strike your heel and the... There will be this cataclysmic moment and evil will finally be undone. As Jesus overcame death, as he vanquished evil, as he bore the wrath of God for our sins, as he was the one who laid down his life on that hill, God's rescue plan came to pass. His faithfulness was true. But it cost him everything. Okay, guys. There's so much more we could say. We are faithful in Jesus Christ. God is the faithful one. And we are his faithful sons and daughters. Guys, I want to challenge us as a church community. Make promises. Make commitments. If you're, if you're, if you're in love and, and you're living with this person and you've not established the covenant of marriage, I would say... Um, well, that's sin. If you're if you're having sex, that the Bible calls that sin. Um, so make a promise and walk it out, just like God. Explicitly express your vow to that person. Make that promise and see God bless your relationship. And that could be like really hard to work out. Some of you are like, "Whoa, what do we do with that?" Sorry. Let's be a people who explicitly make and keep promises. And not like, you know, some of us do. Like, okay, um, you know, I don't want to flake out. Uh, I don't want to, like, break my promises. I know, I'll just never make promises. Sorted. You are so clever. Hmm. That's not like God's family. 
That's not like the faithfulness of God. That's not who we are. We make promises and we keep them. Number two, don't attach strings to your promises. Don't attach strings to your promises. Don't say, well, I'll do this if you do this. Does God make conditional promises? Yes, he does. Actually, he does. He says things like, if you seek me with all of your heart, then I will reward you. There's a promise with a condition. Really good one. Or he'll say like, if you don't forgive your brother or sister, I won't forgive you. That's a promise with a condition. Or he'll say, to the extent that you judge someone else, I will judge you. That's a promise with a condition. So there's lots of promises with conditions. Some like amazing and like the kind of promises that you want anybody. Others are like, okay, that challenges me. That's super hard. Whether there's an explicit condition attached or not does not is not a condition upon the one who made the promise and their faithfulness to uphold it. If you make a promise to someone, there may be a condition attached. But that doesn't mean that your faithfulness is dependent upon their willingness to perform. It's like, you guys remember that thing in high school where um, if you got invited to a party and some, you know, hey, you want to come to my party? And then they would say, uh, who's going to be there? Remember that one? You guys still do that? And you think to yourself, like, uh, I'm going to be there, and you're going to be there, and what difference does it make? Who else is going to be there? Never mind, I don't want you to come. And we can kind of like have that sort of thinking where, like, okay, I will do this if, I will be there if, unless something better comes up. Unless you make me mad, unless you let me down, unless things get really hard, unless this doesn't work out how I'm perfectly envisioning it in my mind. We need to get it in our minds that God is faithful and like him as his children, we make promises that are not conditioned upon the other's ability to perform. But we simply say, yes, I will do this. I will absolutely do this. And there may be even very real consequences attached, meaning like if you do this, then I promise you, we will have a very difficult conversation and it will be unpleasant for both of us. Because I'm not a doormat and I'm just going to roll over, but my faithfulness comes without strings attached. And number three, be prepared to pay for your promises. If you leave here today determined to grow in your faithfulness as a follower of Jesus, to become more like him in your faithfulness, and you decide, I'm going to make some promises. I'm going to make some promises fully intended to keep them no matter what. Awesome. The world needs more of that for sure. Be prepared to pay for those promises. Because they will cost you. Faithfulness will be one of the hardest things we ever do in this life. It will mean that you die to yourself um, daily. Like our king. Can we stand together please? Can the band come up? Guys, we're going to close.